So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to begin tonight at verse 161. We're dealing with the section uh, centered on the Hebrew letter Shin, and it's the 21st of 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This section of eight verses, again, each line beginning with the Hebrew letter Shin, this section of eight verses is sort of interesting in that it has almost no real petitions within it. It's more so the idea of a quiet, obedient, waiting before God. And then in the next stanza, the last one, the 22nd, that we'll look at, it seems to be a whole new level of intimacy with God. And so while there does seem to be a sense in which each one of the 22 sections of eight verses can stand on their own, yet they do have a flow and seem to come to a greater intensity here at the end. So here we start, verse 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. You know, in the real life world of the psalmist, he even interacted with princes, rulers among men. And these princes persecuted him without a cause. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but at the very beginning, we talked about the authorship of this psalm. And virtually all the older commentators believed that King David wrote this psalm, even though it's not specifically attributed to him anywhere in the Bible. More recent commentators tend to think that a later writer wrote it, somebody perhaps after the return from the exile to Babylon. I would tend to agree with the older commentators, but I certainly wouldn't insist upon it. I mean, after all, if God wanted us to really believe that David wrote it, he would have put at the very beginning a psalm of David, but it doesn't say that. But those who do believe that David wrote this psalm understand, of course, that David was a man who was persecuted by princes and persecuted without cause. We remember those many years of David's life where he suffered greatly being persecuted in many different ways on many different levels by the actually quite wicked King Saul. And it was really wonderful that David could truthfully say here, if it was David, the psalmist, and if it was David, then it's especially poignant, where he says there in verse 1, princes persecute me without a cause. You know, David's uh, receiving of persecution from Saul really was without a cause. It was all due to the the paranoia, the the madness, the jealousy, the self-interest of Saul. David had no interest in uh, undermining Saul. David had no interest in defeating him. David remained loving and kind and tender of heart to Saul, even when he was persecuted by him. And so now, in this, he, he cries, my, uh, excuse me, princes persecute me without a cause, but look at the flip side of it in verse 161. But my heart stands in awe of your word. Now, trials, even difficult trials, such as persecution by those in authority. And friends, that's a difficult trial, is it not? When people in authority are persecuting you, that's a big-time trial. But not even that would make the psalmist lose his awe of God's word. 
he did not have a conditional appreciation of the word of God. He didn't say, look, when everything's blessed and good, well, then I'll really love your word. But man, when trials come, I don't know if you're up there, God. No, no, no. Even in some of the most difficult trials of his life, he could say, my heart stands in awe of your word. And I would say this, especially when princes are persecuting you, aren't you tempted to be in awe of the person in authority? To, to really give them too much power, too much credit, too much credence. Instead, instead, what the psalmist said is he said, no, Lord, even though I'm persecuted without a cause, my awe is not upon those princes. My awe is upon your word. An old commentator named Bridges says that some great Jewish Bibles had on their front piece, the sort of artistic front page there, it was Jacob's statement of fear and astonishment connected with his vision of God at Bethel. This is what it would say on the front piece of some old Jewish Bibles. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. That's how the psalmist felt, right? When he looked at the word, he said, this is an awesome place. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So much so that, did you see the statement he makes in verse 162? He says, I rejoice in your word as one who finds great treasure. How about this? The psalmist loved God's word the way some people love treasure. Now listen, there are some people who love treasure a lot. That's how much the psalmist loved the word of God. He knew that it was precious. He knew that it was enriching to life. Matter of fact, it's very interesting. In the original Hebrew, the word treasure there has the sense of spoil or plunder from a battle. And that's very interesting, right? He, he said, your word is like treasure to me that's like spoil from the battle. And, and sometimes spoil has to be fought for, does it not? And riches from God's word sometimes must be fought for. Now, I'll agree there's other times we have some beautiful instances or stories in the Bible where plunder was very easily had, right? Where plunder could just be picked up easily. And sometimes plunder is very easily picked up. Sometimes you have to battle for it quite earnestly. But plunder is connected with some kind of going out into the midst of the battle. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing to think about how the riches from the Bible are like spoil from a battle. And if that's true, first of all, we could say this, the battle's over, isn't it? I mean, you only start digging out the plunder once the battle's over. And our battle is over. Well, in this sense that Jesus Christ has won our victory, right? Oh, no, I don't deny that we have a spiritual battle in our own lives. Of course, that's true. But we know that our captain, our savior, Jesus Christ... He has won the victory, and every blessing we have is spoiled from his great victory when he overcame principalities and powers, all those demonic forces of darkness that were arrayed against the human race, and he overcame them at the cross. It shows this as well, that if riches from the Bible are like spoil from the battle, then the enemy has less to fight with. I mean, you get spoil from a battle someplace, right? You get it from the enemy, and that means that even though we still have a spiritual enemy, he has less to fight with against us than he once had. You know, again, the Bible tells us this. Did you know that the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians that Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, has disarmed 
principalities and powers. In other words, these angelic, uh, demonic enemies against us. Jesus disarmed us. Oh, no, they can still fight against us. He just took away all their armor. He took away all their weapons. And this is the spoil from the battle. And then there's another thing that we should understand is that if riches from the Bible are like spoil from battle, there's a sense of victory, is there not? I mean, when you're holding up the spoil, when you're enjoying it, when you're filling your pockets with the spoil from the battle, if there's anything you feel, you feel like a victor. You feel like a winner. Because you want, and this is exactly how God wants us to feel. He wants us to sense the great triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. And finally, I'd say this, that if riches from the Bible are like spoil from the battle, then there is profit, there's pleasure, there's honor, there's all those things that go along with receiving those riches. It's a wonderful statement that the psalmist makes. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure and treasure in the sense of spoil from the battle. But he continues on here now, verse 163, where he says, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. You know, hatred and love fit together perfectly in verse 163. Sometimes we get it in our mind that Christians should never hate anything. I don't think so. I think that there's some good things to hate. I think that we should hate sin. I think that we should hate falsehood. I think that we should hate deception. We should hate lying. And just as the psalmist says here, I hate and abhor your lying, but I love your law. Wouldn't you say that one who truly loves the pure truth of God will naturally hate lies? And the more you love the truth, the more you're going to hate the lies. And listen, there's another good thing about it. It's one thing for us to hate the lies in other people. How about hating the lies in ourselves? I'd much rather hate your lies than my lies. (laughs) We have to deal with this, don't we? Don't we have to look at our lives and see the lies we say or the lies that we live? Sometimes I think about it. I think about it when we come to worship. I think about it for myself. Will these same lips worship God? Lips that may have been telling lies. Will this same life worship God? A a life that may have been living a lie. No, no, no. We should say with the psalmist right there, just as he said, I hate and abhor lying in others and in myself, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. The goodness and the glory of God's word prompted praise from the psalmist. And this praise was constant. It was continual. He says seven times a day. Now, I don't know about you, but I think his heart was so filled with this this love, this honoring of God, that very spontaneously, I don't think he had to keep a schedule. I don't think he had to keep it on a timer or something like that. He just praised God seven times a day. I don't know if this was a definite number or sometimes in the tradition of Hebrew poetry. He's just trying to say, I perfectly praised you. I praised you a lot. But nevertheless, it was seven times a day that he says that he praised the Lord. I have a sneaking suspicion that seven times is not exactly literal here. 
that, that, that actually he's using it just as an expression, just as a number of perfection, a number of abundance. No, no, no. Knowing the psalmist, as we feel we've gotten to know him through Psalm 119, don't you feel that praising God seven times a day is a little bit of a low estimate for the psalmist? Don't you feel like he probably praised God more than seven actual times? That's just the feeling I have. This was a man who loved to praise God. Every part through his day, he found something that he could praise God for. And listen, this is what we should have a heart filled with. So filled with praise, so filled with appreciation. I would ask each of you to, to look within your hearts, or just ask the Lord to look in your hearts. I would have say, don't, don't look into your own heart. Sometimes you look into your own heart and it's, well, it can be just depressing or it can be deceiving. But why don't you ask God to look into your heart and say, Oh Lord, would you look into my heart and see if there is a great lack of gratitude? You know, gratitude is something really wonderful. It's a wonderful contrast, isn't it, between people who have gratitude in life and people who don't. And people who have gratitude find it very easy to praise God. You praise God for everything that happens during the day. You're just living a life filled with gratitude. This is something that I think that God needs to work on in some of us. Some more than others, but probably every part of us, every one of us, no doubt. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Now verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. The great love that the psalmist had for the word of God brought real benefits to his life. It brought him great peace and it brought him great stability in life. Look at the peace. That's in verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Now in the second part of 165 comes the stability. And nothing causes them to stumble. I wonder... I wonder if you could do some kind of survey, some kind of statistics. I don't think it could ever practically be done because you're asking about things of the heart, right, and things that you just can't check off an opinion or, or a thought about, but these deep things of the heart. But if it were possible to do such a survey, I wonder how it would find the proportion of people who really love the Word of God, who lack the peace of God, and who lack stability in their life. I think it just goes together. You love God, you love his word, and I'm not trying to say that you never have disrupting things in your life. No, no, no. But even in the midst of those disruptions, you can have a peace in God, can you not? And I'm not saying that, that there's never calamities or things that happen in your life. But then again, even in the midst of those, nothing causes them to stumble. Yes, this, this is the great gift that comes from the wonderful relationship with God that's built upon the solid ground of the Word of God. One old commentator says, uh, his name was Horn, he says this, They are at peace with God by the blood of reconciliation, at peace with themselves by the answer of a good conscience, and at the subjugation of those desires which war against the soul. They're at peace with all men by the spirit of love, and the whole creation is at peace with them, and all things work together for good. That's where God wants our lives to be. Now, I would say this as well. This verse does not promise peace to those who perfectly keep the law of God. God doesn't say that. Well, you want peace? 
than just perfectly keep my law. That leaves me out. I don't know about anybody else in this room. But what does he say? He says, no, no, no. Love my God, my word. And if you love his word, I think your life is going to have a general obedience to his word. But no, no, no. We don't earn this peace by our obedience. No, no, we flow in it by our great love for his word. He continues on there, verse 166, where he says, I hope for your salvation and do your commandments. You see, here the psalmist displays that kind of active faith and trust that saves. He had faith in God, right? But it's a faith that could say, I do your commandments. I love that. Look at it again in verse 166. Uh, Excuse me, um, yeah, verse 166. I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. In other words, God, I'm trusting you for salvation, but I'm going to do your commandments. You know, it sounds to me like the psalmist has been reading the book of James, right? Where faith is made evidence, it's made proven in the fact that a person really does obey, that it really does flow out of their lives. Now coming on here, verse 167. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Now, notice this. The psalmist kept the word of God not only with his outward actions, but also with his soul. Isn't that a beautiful line in verse 167? My soul keeps your testimonies. And this sort of brings to our mind something that's really actually a very important issue in the Christian life. Should you obey when you don't really feel like it? Now, some people would say, well, listen, man, I'm just trying to follow my heart, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm just going to do what I feel like to do, and if God wants me to obey him, then he can just give me that desire to obey him. I'm just going to do what I feel. Well, I would disagree with that. I would say that's a wrong way to think. Because I think it's better to obey, even if you feel inside you don't really want to, than to disobey. Always. You see, obedience is going to lead you into a track and to a heart of greater obedience. Now, here's the important part, though. Never be satisfied with outward obedience that doesn't include soul obedience. It's better to obey with your life and fight against it with your soul than to disobey. But listen, if that's where you are, Get on your knees before God and plead with him to bring your heart, your soul, into a place of obedience. Because this is what we want, right? We want to be able to say with the psalmist, my soul keeps your testimonies. Not only my outward actions, but my soul. His love, his conformity to the word of God, it was very deeply rooted. It was not superficial. And then he goes on and he says, And I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. You see, for the psalmist, the knowledge that all my ways are before you prompted obedience. He knew that the God who gave the word also observed his life. Let me say that again, because for some of us, that's going to be a profound statement this evening. The same God who gives us his word looks at our life, and he sees us. 
I don't know what kind of madness it is that comes into the human mind that imagines that sometimes God closes his eyes to us. I don't know what kind of madness it is sometimes that makes us think that because I'm all alone or away from home or something like that, that somehow God doesn't see us. God sees us everywhere. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Now, this was in contrast to the many who lived as if God did not keep all the ways of a man. I find it very interesting that when Jesus was so shamefully mistreated at one of his trials, before men could have the courage to come and strike him on the face, they did to him what man has been longing to do to God for a long time. The Bible says that they blindfolded Jesus. Isn't that in some ways what the corrupt heart of man longs for? We don't mind God being there. Please just cover his eyes so that he doesn't see us. But he does see. And when he looks upon us, he doesn't look upon us with eyes of hatred and condemnation. No, he looks upon us with eyes of love. Even some of us. If it's you this evening, maybe somebody who's listening to this over the internet or at a lading time on a CD or something like this, even those of us who are in strong disobedience to God right now, he still loves you, he still looks upon you, but he desperately, for your sake as much as anybody's, wants you to repent of your sin and to come to that place of obedience. It's wonderful. He says here in these last sections... My soul keeps your testimonies. I keep your precepts and your testimonies. He says again in verse 168. What was one of the great reasons why the psalmist loved the word of God? Because it was the word of God. It belonged to him. You know, if I were to read some I don't know, read some uh, uh, novel where a woman writes a sappy uh, love letter to her husband. It would be very difficult to hold my interest in such a book, in such a story. I mean, I, if I read it at all, I would probably be reading over it very fast. But if my own wife wrote a love letter to me, what great interest I would read it with, right? I mean, I would be thrilled by it. Now, when we know that this book that we have is God's book that he has given to us, then we realize that our our reading, our studying, our meditating, our interaction with this book, it is never to be a dry academic exercise. It's to be an act of living fellowship with the God who loves us so much that he can't wait to communicate to us, and that's what he does in this book. I keep your testimonies and your precepts, for all my ways are before you. Lord God, we want that to be the prayer of our life. We know, Lord, that everything we are, everything we do, everything we will be, it's before you. There's no hiding before you, God, and, and, and we wouldn't want it that way, Lord. We wouldn't want to be able to hide. 
But Father, help us to really live in light of the fact that a loving, gracious God looks down upon us from heaven. We want to receive that here this evening, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name.